Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello and welcome to the Law and the Family podcast brought to you by the Family Law section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm Aaron Weems and with me is my co-host, Anthony Hoover. Today we welcome Lawrence Skip Persick, an attorney with Weber Gallagher in King of Prussia, Montgomery County, who will talk to us today about steps family law attorneys can, ta- can take in dealing with repetitive custody litigants. But before we get into that, Skip, welcome to the show and please take a t- some time to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for having me, guys. Uh, I'm I'm here in King of Prussia. I work for a Philadelphia law firm called Weber Gallagher. I'm in the King of Prussia office, formerly the Norristown office, but uh, we moved to uh, your basic suburban office park, and uh, we're all happy over here. My practice is mostly in Chester and Montgomery counties here in the southeastern part of the state, but I do do a little bit of work in uh, Montgomery County, and uh, sometimes I've been asked to go to other counties in the eastern part. I had a case in Adams County once, so uh, you know I, I, I get around a little bit, but I'm pretty much focused, as I said, in Westchester and Norristown. Great. And, uh, and you recently wrote an article that appeared in the Legal Intelligencer and uh, PA Law Weekly dealing with the topic of repeat custody filings. And I thought to start with, it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of put into, for you to put into context what it is that we as attorneys are looking for as to repetitive or bad faith petitions, because that may not always be what the court necessarily considers to be bad faith or repetitive. So why don't you talk a little bit about what it is that we, we should be looking for? Well, I, I was trying to be the good, diligent attorney in reading the advance sheets, and I, I try to do that on a semi, 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 semi regular basis. And I came across a case called Moyer versus Leon, which is a superior court case. The opinion was issued in August of 2021, and it dealt with repeat custody filers. In that case, father had filed nine special relief petitions in a one-year period, and the trial court assessed him $3,200 in counsel fees for the idea that he was repeatedly filing and, and causing a burden on the mother. And I read through it, and I see that the Superior Court reversed the trial court and, and threw out the counsel fee provision. So I kind of thought back, and I said, you know, we all as family law practitioners have run into the situation where we go to a custody trial, and we get a pretty good result for our client, and everything's all done, and you think it's all sealed up and done, and then, then your client and her children or his children can move on and move forward. And then, you know, either that day or the next day or a couple of days later, the other side walks down to the pathonotary's office and files a modification. So, you know, what, what, what do you do? I mean, it's like, what, what can you do? Because here, as I said, superior courts kind of say, well, the, the trial court didn't take the situation properly in that situation. And uh, I just thought there has to be something that you can do because we've all been kind of struck by that situation where we think the case is closed, but in the custody context, you can always go back and modify and people go back and modify and then the whole thing starts all over again. And Skip, you said start all over. I mean, that's just two premises of custody law. I mean, 
the the standard, right? What what is the standard, or any what kind of door do you need to get through to file a petition for modification? Is it change? Well, do you have to prove change in circumstances? Well, I don't know. That's 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 part of the problem is that you don't have to prove a change in circumstances. That's the law and support. But when it comes to custody, any modification that's deemed to be in the child's or the children's best interest is fair game, and the court has to consider it. Now, in the uh, the case that I cited, the Moyer case, what the Superior Court did was it looked back and it said that, well, you know, dad did get some minor form of substantive relief with each of his special relief petitions. So we can't really say that all those petitions were frivolous. And uh, the court in Moyer drew back on an earlier Superior Court case called Dong Yuan Chen versus Saidi, which is a superior court case from 2014, which talks about a father that filed seven custody modifications in seven years. And uh, uh, again, he was dinged for counsel fees, and then uh, he appealed to superior court, and the superior court said, well, wait a second, he did raise some legitimate issues in all of those, and because he kind of couched this in, or conceivably it was couched in the best interest of the children, that the filing didn't adversely affect the children's interest, that he should be permitted to proceed with his petitions and they should be heard. So uh, I guess in terms of your question, Anthony, of what's the standard, the standard is, did this filing, was this filing in some form of, uh, uh, or was it in the best interest of the children or filed at least citing to the best interest of the children and uh, it didn't adversely affect the children's best interest? So getting to the situation with practitioners, exactly what we're talking about. I think we're going to set this in a different light, right? We're, we're not talking about contempt of court or, you know, contempt of custody orders, right? I think we could have a whole nother discussion on, you know, contempt of custody court orders and trying to seek attorney's fees or, or you know, what are in the toolbox for the court to stop someone from violating a court order. But we're not talking about that, right? We're just talking about the frequent flyers, so to speak. Yeah, I, I'm talking about the guy that you have the trial and he wanted 30 Thursday night and he didn't get Thursday night and uh, or the woman that wanted Thursday night. And, you know, after everything's all said and done and you have a trial in front of a judge and the moving party didn't get that Thursday night, they run downstairs, they file a modification and say, I want the Thursday night. So they essentially try to do the same thing over again. Now, that situation I just gave you where you're kind of raising the same issue again, exactly the same issue again, that's the situation where you have the possibility of getting counsel fees under either Title 23, the custody code, Section 5339, or Title 42, Section 2503, where it talks about uh, obdurate, vexatious, and bad faith filings. The difference between the uh, the custody language and the uh, the more general Title 42 section is that the custody section has a notation about repetitive. So, that, as I said, that's that's the situation that uh, that 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 we're trying to do something about. Now, uh, in terms of, of of my article and what I was trying to look at, I was trying to look at you know what you couldn't do. I was trying to figure out well what can you do? So uh, you can uh, move through, uh, uh, as I said, is that 
after you get the dismissal or the favorable result from the repetitive filing, you can file a custody fee petition and go back and ask for custody and ask for our counsel fees in the custody case under either of those two statutory sections that uh, that I just uh, that I just cited. And in my article, I also list a number of cases where uh, uh, people actually did get counsel fees. One of them is Avedian, A-V-E-T-Y-A-N versus Sternberg, a uh, DNC case from Bucks County in 2016, where there were 16 custody petitions filed over a six-year period. And the court awarded uh, the trial court awarded $73,150 in counsel fees under uh, Title 23, Section 5339. Uh, and another one, uh, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y hyphen Shannon versus Shannon. That's a 2014 DNC case from uh, Lawrence County. And their uh, mother was assessed counsel fees for filing three petitions in the same year, uh, asking a Pennsylvania court to take jurisdiction of an Ohio case where the Ohio court had previously issued an extensive opinion regarding custody of those children and uh, the Ohio court retained jurisdiction. Mother kind of uh, blew all of that off and filed a petition in, in, uh, uh, in Pennsylvania and uh, her petition was dismissed and she was assessed counsel fees. So the one note I have is that neither of those cases went to superior court. They're both trial court cases, but the counsel fee awards did stand. So th there, there is there is hope out there, I guess, for uh, us practitioners that are faced with these situations. And I think I heard a tip in there, or just I mean, not necessarily a tip. I mean, procedural <laughs> requirement. You know, the the ability to get attorney's fees is this something that you can just say, hey, look, let's just ignore any kind of responsive filing. Let's just show up on the day of hearing that this other person, the repetitive filer, filed. And just request counsel fees on the record at the hearing. Again, best practice. I mean, just from from your perspective, you know, is it to actually file a petition for fees? Maybe lay some of this out in front of the judge before you get in there. Well, I, I'm a belt and suspender kind of guy, so uh, uh, I, I think that there's nothing wrong in uh, in in proceeding in front of the trial court and saying that this is a frivolous filing. This is, you know, use the buzzwords: obdurate, vexatious, and uh, uh, and, and dilatory and uh, repetitive. Uh, just, you know, throw as many of those buzzwords on the record as you possibly can. And then uh, if the judge says, well, I'm not going to consider counsel fees until you file a separate petition, then fine, go file your petition. But be all set to have, uh, uh, you know, to, to raise that during the course of the hearing and be all set to have an affidavit of your counsel fees ready to hand up and say, hey, look, here it is. This trial cost my client, you know, X thousands of dollars and uh, uh, I want uh, all of it back. And hopefully you'll get some of it back. And I guess one one way to look at this is you know, relative to the superior court cases and, and the and the trial court cases that you cited is that the superior court cases were obviously brought up on appeal because somebody felt like, you know, they were getting the uh, a bad outcome in terms of the counsel fees, because as you said, they had, they had something to hang their petition on. They had some factual or circumstantial environment that there was actual some grounds to pursue those claims. It sounds like those trial court cases, they really were more in the vein of frivolous or repetitive or not, or, or without any real substance to them. And perhaps that's why they also weren't appealed. Um, so I think we're starting to kind of sketch out, you know, the, the that that example of what flies and what doesn't. 
and how we really will know at the time that a petition really is repetitive because you're really not raising anything new or you're just trying to file the same petition hoping for a different result. And that's where it starts to accumulate the council fees and the sanctions. Yeah. And and another thought that I had on this is that particularly in custody litigation, a lot of times you're running up against a pro se litigant that doesn't necessarily I mean they're not forced to adhere to the uh, the ethical rules that uh, we attorneys have to live by. And a lot of times they've got time on their hands. So they're they're like just trying to figure out new and different ways to drive the other side up a wall. And you know, the old Potter Stewart definition of pornography, you know it when you see it. I think when you've been around long enough, you're going to know what a frivolous petition is. I mean, I can't sit here and tell you the four points of a frivolous petition. You'll know it when you see it. But kind of to your point, you know, there's a difference between, hey, I'm aggravated by the other side, and I think these are all frivolous, compared to what really is frivolous. Because we see these, we see clients all the time that they think that what the other party's raising is meaningless or it doesn't have any real substance, but in reality, it could have something. But so aggravation isn't enough, is <laughs> not enough to, to constitute frivolous or repetitive. Right. The uh, the amazingly annoying opposing counsel that you always dread when your client says, oh, so-and-so is on the other side, that, that does not count as frivolous in and of itself. So. <laughs> Being a jerk is not against the law, unfortunately. <laughs> Right. I, I don't know that it's uh, it, it's it's particularly civil in the world of we're trying to increase civility, but I don't know that, uh, yeah, being a jerk is particularly a uh, an ethical violation. But you did mention a good point, which a lot of these are pro se litigants. Um, I think we've all experienced that a lot of our a, a big portion of all of our county filings are pro se. And I think a lot of counties have taken steps to try to make the process maybe a little bit more transparent so that there can be a little bit more responsibility placed on the pro se litigants that they at least have access to and know the rules of the game so that we can decrease some of the amount of petitions that maybe aren't warranted. Is that something that you've seen in your practice? Yeah, it is. And uh, I think that the courts are getting more and more attuned to particularly in the custody world, pro se litigants. I was in a discussion with a group of lawyers and psychologists last evening, and we were talking about the new amendments to Rule 1915.11 relative to interviewing children in the courtroom, and they've specifically tailored that rule now to uh, uh, to meet situations where one side has an attorney and the other side does not, or neither side has an attorney. So yeah, courts are well aware of that fact. And also I pointed out in my article, a couple of other tools that we as attorneys can look to that we don't always consider in these situations. And what I'm talking about is, and this is, you know, outside of the 1900 rule series and guess what family law practitioners, there's a whole bunch of rules out there that are outside the 1900 series. And I'm talking about uh, rules of civil procedure 1020. 23.1 through 1023.4. And particularly here, I have some language for uh, everyone for rule 1023.1. And I'm looking at subsection C. And it says that the signature of an attorney or, or pro se party constitutes a certificate that the signatory has read the pleading, motion, or other paper. By signing, filing, submitting, or later advocating such a document, the attorney or pro se party certifies that, to the best of that person's knowledge, information, and belief, formed after an inquiry reasonable under the circumstances, one, it is not being presented for any improper purpose such as to harass, 
or to cause unnecessary delay or needless increase in the cost of litigation. And then I skip down to three. The factual allegations have evidentiary support or, if specifically so identified, are likely to have evidentiary support after a reasonable opportunity for further investigation or discovery. And then I skip down to subsection D. If after notice and a reasonable opportunity to respond, the court determines that subdivision C has been violated, the court may, subject to the conditions stated in rules 1023.2 through 1023.4, impose an appropriate sanction upon any attorneys, law firms, and parties that have violated subdivision C or are responsible for the violation. Okay, so I've actually used this rule in the past. And uh, what happens is that you get something in and, you know, you're like, wait a second, this is ridiculous. It's the same thing that was filed before or it raises some point that is uh, uh, clearly ridiculous. You write a letter. You put the other side on notice that their petition is either has a factual issue or there's a legal issue or whatever. And you, you put them on notice. And as I said, via a letter, and then you go through the hearing and assuming that the hearing uh, comes out in your favor, you then uh, have grounds for a, a fee petition and say, look, I want reimbursement for everything my client had to pay in order to defend uh, this crazy uh, petition that you bought. And I actually, one time I, I got one of these letters uh, myself and we went to hearing and I won. I won the hearing. The other side said it was frivolous, but I prevailed. So uh, you got you got to watch what you're doing with all of that. And you'd say, though, I mean, that, that's again, that's a I mean, you utilizing the rules of procedure that you just identified mm-hmm. uh, again. I mean, again, is is a a fairly high standard in the sense that, you know, if you send a letter like this to another attorney, I mean, it needs to be a a substantive outcome determinative fact that is just so clear or wrong that there's no way that they could have asserted this in a petition. I cite a couple of cases and to, to help illustrate the point, which is that one is a uh, an Allegheny County DNC case from 2012, Morgan's M O R G A N S versus Morgan's, and in that case, wife and her counsel were assessed $57,500 in counsel fees for trying to enforce provisions of a uh, of a marital settlement agreement that the court had previously modified. So there, you had counsel and a party completely ignored the fact that it was modified. So I think that in that one, they were trying to enforce alimony provisions of a property settlement agreement that had previously been modified. So there were no alimony provisions, but they tried to enforce them anyway. And as I said here, not only the party, but the attorney got dinged as well. And as I said a moment or two ago, is that the court can institute a sanction under Rule 1023.3 on its own behalf. And an example of that is a case called Lowe, L-O-W-E versus Lowe, a superior court case from 2015, where an attorney was hit for not necessarily counsel fees, but was hit for costs and expenses from a pro se mother. Because in that case, father's counsel had filed a motion in a custody case, and then he quote unquote 
pulled the motion. In essence, he filed a precipice withdrawing it, didn't bother to tell the mother. The mother shows up at court. The mother's sitting there in the courtroom all by herself. The tip staff sees the mom sitting there, says, what, what are you doing here? And she said, well, I have a, a motion to be heard by the court. And then tip staff says, oh, that was withdrawn. And the judge got wind of it. It seems that this attorney had done this to this woman before, and the judge did not take a liking to that. And the judge, as I said, hit the woman for or hit the attorney for uh, travel costs, the woman missing a day of work and any little fee that could be added on to that. So, as I said, is that, you know, this kind of comes from the do unto others as you would have others do unto you situation, which is that you got to. You got to be courteous to not only your fellow attorneys, but pro se litigants. They not only could be a thorn in your side, but they could be a thorn in your side because you don't treat them with the dignity that you should. I think that's a great point about what when you talked about the process of putting somebody on notice and giving them an opportunity to fix it. I mean, some of that is that's pulled straight from really a professional courtesy that you're letting somebody know that I've identified this flaw in your petition. I'm going to give you an opportunity to remedy it. In my experience, it typically gets a response that's not as courteous. Um, Usually people feel defensive, um, but I would imagine it also provides an opportunity to have that discussion about the substance of your petition to see if that's the case. And and I think the whole point of it is that if you are the filing party, you have an opportunity to fix your your pleading without the court, without really any embarrassment other than the conversation you had with counsel. Otherwise, you're going to a hearing where the situation you had and you you might come out, you know, the filing party might come out on the other side, the better for it, because you were able to substantiate your pleading. But it does speak to me that it's an opportunity to have that civil discussion about the substance of the petition and try to fix it. And then with respect to a pro se, affording someone the same opportunity and also not to waste people's time. I mean, it sounds like that case that you cited, that was the classic attorney taking advantage of a pro se litigant and just trying to trying to hit them economically because maybe they did have to take that day off work. So you want to just try to see those things pushed out of the process, pushed out of the practice, right? You're right. And uh, with the Rule 1023 uh, process is that, you know, you'll have that letter that you can send off to your client. And there's a lot of times when we don't necessarily agree with our clients, but they're our clients and we're there to represent them. And you get the letter and you say, see, I told you, you know, we were kind of treading on thin ice with that petition. And and look, do you, do you want me to proceed or don't you? There's a risk involved. Skip, any last tool here that can be, I mean, we don't need to go, again, crazy depth here because we are talking family law. I think used maybe in other suits that are not family law, but I don't possibly, last one here. Okay. Well, the last little bit that I have is, is another rule of civil procedure that, again, that, that those of us family law practitioners may not be aware of. And it's kind of a bit of a tangent, but it's Rule of Civil Procedure 233.1. And it's specifically addressed for frivolous litigation filed by pro se plaintiffs. And the good news is that it's specifically aimed at pro se plaintiffs. The bad news is it specifically states in the rule that it does not apply to family law actions. So you can't use it in the custody case. You can't use it in the support case. You can't use it in the divorce case. But I think that that those of us who have been around the block a few times in the family law world, we have seen cases where you prevail in the custody case and the losing party files suit against 
the psychologist or somebody like a bit on the sidelines of the case or the lawyer or the lawyer. Right. Is that the cases that come up in particular, there's a whole series of cases of a mother in Allegheny County who had her parental rights terminated to her children. And she filed lawsuit after lawsuit against everybody that she could think of. She filed against the Department of Children, Youth, and Families in Allegheny County. She filed against her lawyer. She filed against the judge. She filed against the county commissioners. She filed against everybody. And there are a whole series of appellate court decisions affirming the dismissals of her cases and assessing her for counsel fees. So, as I said, is that that's something to keep in the back of your mind. You can't really use it directly, but you know, it's it's another tool that's in the toolbox that's there for you to use. All right, Skip, I got to tell you, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really helpful. I'm going to encourage everyone to read your article. That's just great. Really concise summary there. And then if anyone needs to do a deep dive, right, you, you have the case citations right in there. You can do the deep dive. Oh, I was just going to say that, yeah, that you know, thank you for having me. And, and the only closing point that I would make is that you know, we all get on both sides of these, and I think I kind of alluded to that a little bit ago, which is that not only do we have to defend the frivolous petition, but we have that client that they may pay your bill every month, and because of that, you'll put up with a little bit more from them than you would from somebody else. But, you know, we have rules of professional responsibility, and under professional rule responsibility 3.1, as a lawyer, you're not supposed to proceed with anything that doesn't have merit to it. So just realize that, you know, what goes around comes around. So uh, just be considerate of your opponents as well as defending your client from the ridiculous litigation. Excellent parting words. All right, Skip, thank you so much. Thank you for everyone for listening and keep listening to the Law and the Family podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. Thank you. Bye, guys. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.